0: I.V.M.
1: Hello, we're Team Splainer. Welcome to an all-new episode of Press Decode, a weekly podcast where we take Splainer's mission to declutter the news one step further. Check out our newsletter for more stories. We've got a one-month free trial for you in the show notes, so definitely don't forget to take us for a free spin. But for now, just sit back, relax, and don't let the news give you the blues. I'm Sarah, your host for the day, and I have with me Prafula and Varta. As always, we have three segments for you. In our first segment, we're unpacking All the many narratives about the brutal killings by Muslim men in Udaipur and Amravati. For the food for thought segment, we're asking a very important question. Can fashion really be sustainable? And then in our final segment, we'll be roasting and toasting our fave and least fave items from the week. Let's get on with our big story. So last week, a sensational murder hit all the front pages. Two Muslim men murdered a Hindu tailor in Udaipur. The reason? The killers took grave offence to his views defending BJP spokesperson Nupur Sharma's derogatory remarks about the Prophet. Then a few days into the investigation, authorities drew parallels with a murder in Amravati that occurred a week prior to the Udaipur one. Again, a Hindu man was killed by Muslim men because of his views on Sharma's comments. I'm going to start by laying out the facts of both the cases. First, let's get on with the Udaipur case. So on June 10th, Kanaya Lal shared a post defending Nupur Sharma. A group of Muslims almost immediately filed a police complaint about it and Lal was promptly arrested for a day until he secured bail. By June 15th, he apologized but insisted that the Facebook post was shared by mistake by his son. And he also asked for police protection as he feared for his life. The police claimed the two communities had reached an amicable agreement and that there was no need for any protection. Then, on June 28th, Lal was hacked to death with cleavers in his shop by two Muslim men, Muhammad Riaz Atari and Ghawas Muhammad. The most gruesome bit, however, was that they recorded the beheading on their mobile phones and posted a video boasting about the murder on social media. Both were arrested within hours and the case was swiftly passed on to the National Investigation Authority. Now the Amravati killing. The chemist, Umesh Kole first shared a social media post defending Nupur Sharma in a WhatsApp group which also happened to include some of his Muslim customers. One of them, named Yusuf, shared Kohli's message on other WhatsApp groups and urged them to take action. Kohle was soon killed while driving home on his scooter. The Maharashtra police initially suspected a contract killing, but the local BJP members pointed out the fact that Kohle had supported Sharma, then arrested seven men and confirmed that the motive was revenge for his WhatsApp messages. This investigation, too, has been promptly handed over to the NIA by the Home Ministry, citing the fact that they need to investigate any and all connections that may be. But here's the thing. Now, the investigating authorities and the Home Ministry are also insinuating that both murders are part of a greater conspiracy involving, surprise, surprise, our favorite target, Pakistan. But it isn't yet clear why the government thinks that there is a connection with Pakistan or even between the two. All this doesn't end here. The waters were further muddied when media houses managed to draw links between some of the accused in Udaipur and the BJP. So there's a lot that's going on and I don't really know where we're going with this. I do recommend reading our big story from when we looked at these cases because we laid out all the facts that are available without any opinions.
2: Yeah, so speaking of not giving any opinions... I have a hot take. <laughs> it may sound like a hot take. It Actually, I, in my opinion, it's not really because I am talking about the Udaipur killing in particular. I think obviously the case is absolutely gruesome and has been condemned everywhere in all quarters. But it wouldn't be so disruptive for the state if it wasn't an opposition state ruled by the Congress Party. Hmm. And also, like as in you said that there is uh, part of like a greater conspiracy involving Pakistan. Sure, because that's, I don't know, that's for the police to decide. First of all, it's their investigation. But it's also a convenient theory. I'm not saying that it's wrong, but I'm not sure. What I do know is that you have to recognize that this is the result of an increasing polarization in the country. Okay, it might have links in Pakistan. But like, the kind of reactions that these kinds of things like garner in the public, I don't know, public thought, sphere, opinion, look at Twitter, it's like, it's full of this kind of polarization. And these kinds of events will result in more polarization and communal hatred, the beneficiary of which in Indian politics has always been the current ruling party and that is very clear with the events that unfolded after the murder which is basically that the whole state was under it was just like stopped you know there were demonstrations everywhere Mm -hmm. after the case like soon after the case the state police sprung into action very soon and like they should the suspects were arrested produced in court investigation was begun a special investigation team was formed all in a matter of two days when it was learned that there might be some foreign hand at play, the case was handed over to NIA. And then the state police promised to cooperate with the NIA in the investigation. So I don't see state performing badly, except in the case that they didn't take the threats that Lal was facing as serious. They didn't give him the protection, but thought that the matter was resolved amicably. And that's unfortunate and a lapse on the state, on the part of the state. But other than that, the state's response has been very good and fast. Yet the state was overwhelmed by protests. The PJP took out like massive demonstrations in the state. And mind you, there were no demands in these demonstrations. Because what will you criticize the government for? There's no like action related problem with the state police. What you're doing is, oh, there's appeasement of the Muslims. So what are you doing? You're creating more polarization using this particular instance to say that this is because of the Congress party. A strategy, by the way, which has always repaid the BJP everywhere. And it all makes sense. Like when you recall that the state is due for elections next year. That's it. Like That is all you need to know about what is happening and why it is happening in the state.
0: Hmm. But, you know, Vagta, I don't think that's too much of a hot take at all. Because if you look at all the theories that have sprung up aftermath of especially the Udaipur case, everything has this particular tone to it. And, you know, this kind of tone feels like it is meant to antagonize a certain group. And obviously, this is largely our own interpretations. But here's the facts. Within a day of Kanaya Lal's murder, for example... The Rajasthan government flagged Ghaus Muhammad's connection to Pakistan, like Sarah said. And turns out he visited a religious group called Dawat-e-Islami in 2014 and spent about 45 days there and more recently has been calling about 8 to 10 Pakistani numbers for over the last 2 to 3 years. And look, it's not clear if it's a group of religious extremists or if they're just purists. But... Reporting in India especially has painted it as some sort of extremist organization. And to add to all of this, there's sources, quote-unquote, that say that the NIA seems to have uncovered both a Pakistani handler named Salman Bhai, who apparently urged Gauss to take action because peaceful protests won't yield results. And there's a local ringleader involved. Apparently, his name is Babla Bhai, and he reportedly made a hit list of about ten people, and then assigned different groups to attack them. And wild and all, but that's just theory number one. In the days after the murder, very photos of the other accused, Riyaz Atari, surfaced online with local BJP leaders. One of these posts even described Riyaz as a BJP karyakarta, and this led to. What is now theory number two? India today was the first to make these photos public and then in their exclusive framed it as a plot to sneak into the BJP unit in Rajasthan for three years. Why that three years? I'm not sure why so specific.
1: And don't say sneak in, please. Infiltrate is the word that
0: they used throughout the article for some reason. Mm. Yeah, and you know what's funny is they even quote one of the leaders who uploaded the picture with Riaz and that person goes on to describe this man as someone who is two-faced and constantly complained about the party privately. And if we think that's bad, News 18 claimed that the two accused were in touch with handlers in Pakistan who asked them to maintain a relationship with the local BJP leaders and develop knowledge about the leadership. And bear in mind, neither of them really attribute this to anything except for, again, quote-unquote, sources. So basically, it's like a, a novel then. What they wrote. Mm. Creative writing exercise. (laughs) Yes, creative writing exercise. What the India Today article is, anyway. But uh, like Quagta said, all this politics and in this case, media reporting to the point of provocation has worked out for the powers to be. And this is just me thinking out loud, but maybe because the crime is so undoubtedly gruesome it's easier to put a spin on because emotions and tensions are running high and that's very easy to manipulate.
1: I think with a story like this I would also like to know what you guys think so feel free to write into us at talk to us at spinner.in because I think with a story like this there's just so many narratives and counter narratives and this is where we stand and we have enough reason to believe this way. Anyway, on that note, we come to the end of our first segment. We'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. We're Team Splainer and in today's Food for Thought, we're looking at fashion, fashion, fashion. Last week, the global industry giants announced that they would review something called Higgs Materials Sustainability Index, which was basically a key ranking system that was widely used by all top brands to measure the sustainability of clothes, but then... It had to be reviewed because the metrics were revealed to be dubious. So to put things into perspective first about the industry itself, fashion accounts for 4-10% to 10% of the world's carbon emissions. That's more than all international flights and maritime shipping combined. And the problem is getting bigger each and every day. Considering it was found that the industry's progress on right from carbon reduction to ensuring living wages for workers was 30% slower in 2019 than the year before. All while the volume of apparel and footwear that's being produced in the world is forecasted to increase by 81% by 2030. Now back to the dodgy index. So the Higgs Sustainability Index was created in 2011 By a group of industry bigwigs that included brands like H&M, Walmart, Nike and Levi's. It's essentially a rating system that looks at the supply chains of products and gives them a sustainability score. And in 2021, a consumer-facing version was launched to allow shoppers themselves to view the environmental impact of their shopping based on factors such as greenhouse gas emissions, fossil fuels, water use and water pollution. Basically a bid to allow more sustainable and ethical shopping. But clearly that's not happened since we're rethinking the index itself. But here's how we reached here. So more recently, the New York Times called out the index in around mid-June for strongly favoring synthetic materials made from fossil fuels over natural fibers like cotton, wool or leather. The reason polyester does well on the index is that it doesn't need toxic pesticides or fertilizers, unlike, say, cotton. Over and above just this one thing, New York Times listed out more reasons as to why it believes the score is dubious. So it first stated that it is based on European manufacturing data from 2009, when 93% of polyester today is produced in Asia where environmental standards are very different. Then it pointed out that the rating ignores the chemicals that are used to manufacture polyester, nor does it include the emissions of methane that come from the fossil fuels that are used to make these products. Most importantly, the index also ignores what happens to these polyester clothes after they are bought and discarded in the future. Other organizations also pointed out that a number of funders, board members, etc., linked to the group that manages the index, have strong connections to the oil and gas industry, whose products are used to manufacture polyester. Following NYT investigation, Norway directed its two biggest apparel companies, including H&M, to stop all marketing references to the heat index. And on June 27th, it was announced that the Group managing the index will remove all product labeling that cites data from the index. Now, keeping all this in mind, I just want to know, can something like fashion ever truly be sustainable when it's an industry that thrives
2: on consumption? Every industry thrives on consumption.
1: Rephrase, in terms of this industry will not, because it's about trends, right?
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, especially like fast fashion. Which is like exactly yeah. We, I think we carried a statistic that said that I think Zara has some fifty-two plus seasons, which means one or trend one trend every week, a new collection every week. That's ridiculous. Mm. That's fast fashion, and that is not sustainable. Fifty-two
1: micro seasons in the industry, and Zara alone is twenty-four new clothing
2: collections every year. Ah, yes. Mm. Right. So the wait fifty-two micro seasons comes from which which uh, figure? generally the industry i think to stick to oh, that. that. all right yeah yeah so that's not sustainable 24 seasons are, is also not sustainable correct but the thing is that these terms these just like these sustainable these eco-friendly and organic just these these are like catchphrases now they are marketing buzzwords at this point because no mm-hmm. one really knows what they mean and it irked me so much because we carried this explainer on fashion being sustainable like a day or two ago and then a Casa Air, that airline backed by Rakesh Junjunwala, it's going to start operations soon and they unveiled their uniform recently and I'm not discounting the good bits. I do love that they are the only airline that have their crew wear sneakers which is great for comfort but they also build their uniform as eco-friendly. Why? Because the clothes will be created using recycled polyester fabric which is made from pet bottles like the plastic from those bottles In which you drink coke and like water and stuff, that which is salvaged from marine waste. So it's recycled plastic, great, but also microfiber. Hmm. And I've become more and more and more conscious about them since we've been covering these stories in our headlines, you know. It's not just our water and marine life that is at the receiving end of microplastic. We've been accumulating it in our bodies. First, we found microfibers in baby poop. Then we found it in our, like, deep in our lungs, which means that we're inhaling microfibers also. And now we have it in our blood. We have microfiber in our blood. Microplastics. Uh, plastics. Yeah. So, although hard and unaffordable... It's best to stick to clothing that is made from natural products for your own health and for the environment. But then there is the question of vegan leather. So when you're talking, when you're just right now when Sarah, you were talking to me about, you know, using natural fibers like cotton and wool and leather, and those don't do well on the index. There's vegan leather, which would probably do well because lots of chemicals are used in treating leather, but also animals are killed. (laughs) So vegan leather has this moral high ground of well, being vegan, but it's actually made from plastic polymers, which end up as more microplastics in our water and our food and finally our bodies again. So I sometimes wonder like, do most people who opt for vegan leather products understand where it comes from? Is it a conscious choice? Or maybe we were just choosing one cause over another. Like saving animals is I
1: don't know. That and also, like you said, these buzzwords are all across, right? So I think it also
2: genuinely helps. Soothe our guilt. Yes, that's what like when you say there is that moral high ground, like, oh, if you gave me leather and vegan leather, I would all go opt for vegan leather because, oh, my God, like you didn't kill an animal for that. But Aww. like where is the <laughs>
1: directly you didn't directly kill an animal.
2: Yeah. So and so first I would think then that the microplastics come. <laughs> yeah, then <laughs> then the microplastics come. So like when you see this first, I would think that plastic products are not eco-friendly. But Akasa Air made their uniforms from recycled plastic, which is, honestly, it is more eco-friendly than new plastic products. But it's not nearly as good for the environment as a product made using organic raw material. And I guess that is where the index sort of helped us, you know, helped us understand and make sense of the grades and levels of like environmental friendliness but of course it didn't do so well because it didn't account for all the holistic production and the consumption process like most of these indices do not take into account what happens to what you've produced that's the point like if you create 52 micro seasons even if it is made sustainable where is it going correct that's right
0: yeah and you know you said it has helped us kind of figure out what is in relatively sustainable or whatever. But I think it's also made this one thing very clear that slapping on a sustainable or planet-friendly label becomes very easy if you have the right kind of data on hand. And, you know, it got me thinking that the cost is obviously so huge, even in the richer parts of the world, but it skyrockets in the global South. Because for the longest time, we've been hearing discourse about the fact that fast fashion exploits and continues to exploit Sweatshops in Asia and Africa, and people then say, you know, fast fashion has disrupted the fashion industry because, like we just said, they have some 52 micro seasons, and the industry is constantly now churning out something new. Uh, but it's also creating so much waste because the production of shirts and shoes only shirts and shoes has more than doubled in the past quarter century, and almost three quarters of just these shirts and shoes end up burnt or buried in landfills. And a deep dive by ABC reveals that even the ones that are bought don't have much of a shelf life because in one in three women in the UK who were surveyed consider their clothes old if they wore them only twice. And because of this close to almost 15 million used garments from North America and Europe get sent to Africa and then what then happens is for example in the Ghanaian capital of Accra there's a sprawling market that sells clothes that you know people in the west no longer want and competition is fierce because there's about 5,000 retailers who fight sometimes physically fist fight to sell their goods and if you look it up you'll see like videos of sellers and porters carrying these huge bundles of unused or secondhand clothes and these bundles can weigh anywhere up to like 55 kgs and just one person is hauling them around the entire day and then just the clothes that do not have defects or are still in trend everything else either gets torched or dumped into the city's landfill and over the years this landfill has become a literal hill of trash and 60% of this trash hill is just garments and textiles So if we were to step back from Africa and look at the numbers globally, the rate at which we are consuming garments uh, right now means that the equivalent of one garbage truck of textiles is being tossed into landfills every second around the world. And that is just a mind-blowing number to me. And I know it's a very gloomy scenario because on the one hand, slow fashion is expensive and not everybody can access it. On the other hand, fast fashion is just terrible all around. So I don't know, maybe it boils down to the fact that we collectively need to maybe slow our rolls and like consciously take into account how much we are consuming.
1: Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Just introspect. Mm. And on that note, we come to the end of this segment. We'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IBM Podcast Network. Welcome back to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. It's time for our final segment this week, Roast or Toast. I
0: don't have a least fave item, Profula. I hope you do. I am here to fill in the gap, but uh, this is a least fave item because it is funny, but I do not want it happening to me ever in my life, which is why least fave. So apparently, fish are raining down in San Francisco's Bay Area. And I found out only while reading this article that this actually does happen. It's a freak of nature when a storm picks up fish or frogs or bugs from bodies of water and then drops them wherever the storm lands. So you have a nice surprise after the storm that you've just witnessed. But in San Francisco, apparently the anchovy population in its lakes have exploded. So the pelicans and seagulls that feed on these fishes are too full to eat them. And wow. there was this one quote in the article that I was reading that uh, said all these pelicans were just sitting on top, like the surface of the lake was just covered by these birds because they were sitting and like they had mouthfuls of fish that they just could not eat because that's there's that many fish. So what these birds are now doing is they're dropping these fishes willy nilly across the city. They're, so people have been waking up to find like their cars just covered in fish or the streets just covered in fish. And, you know, the, the fact that fish are falling out of the sky or and have a very real chance of hitting you across the head out of nowhere is very funny to me. But again, I really would not want to be where this is happening. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, like we tried to pull off the, oh, if a bird takes a dump on your head, it's luck. What are you going to say about the fish? This hmm. <laughs> is way worse and you stink. Nope. Okay, I have a fave item. The story was too good that I couldn't miss out on it just to be like, I give up being resident grumps and thank you, Profola, for taking over. But basically, Indigo found its way into a very strange and unexpected crisis last Saturday. Large number of its cabin crew didn't show up for work, forcing 55% of its flight to be delayed. Now here's where it gets interesting. <laughs> the reason for this college-style mass bunk... <laughs> was simply that Air India was conducting phase two of its recruitment drive. The absolute kicker, however, was that the lure of an Air India job had little effect on any other airline, including Spice Jet. Aviation authorities eventually demanded an explanation from Indigo, but again, what are they to say? I think it's a delightful story. Like, a mass bank in college pissed off a teacher. Here, imagine the sheer sure number of people who couldn't travel.
2: Mm, proxy mm. even could
1: <laughs> So, yeah, that was it.
2: Yeah, it's a good item. My fave item this week is uh, teenage boys taking over cinemas across the world. If you haven't heard this story yet, the fifth installment of the Despicable Me franchise came out over the weekend. Minions, The Rise of Gru, which is the origin story of the franchise's supervillain. And it's come out five years after the last one. And in the meantime, fans have grown older. And rowdier. (laughs) So anyway, the movie garnered a lot of attention on TikTok with the hashtag Gentle Minions, which is a bizarre trend based in part prank, part nostalgia for the franchise that has a lot of young boys between 13 and 17 heading to the movie theater screenings dressed in suits. Like suits, like black suits with ties, just like their fave supervillain group. (laughs) There are videos of them like holding hands like in a a posture that Gru always has his hands in when he's thinking. So check those videos out. So what these kids are doing is uh, they arrive they've nicely you know nodded their heads, bought their tickets, they're making their way into the theatre and the moment the opening credits start on screen, they rose from their seats and they gave a standing ovation. So everybody else was pissed. (laughs) So much that some theaters have now banned guests in formal attire. What? <laughs> yeah. There is a statement from a theater in LA. It, they said, due to recent disturbances following the hashtag Gentle Minions trend, any group of guests in formal attire will be refused entry for showings of the movie.
1: I love this story. Like, it's a great can you story. imagine when the first day it happened, right? And people who run the theatre, if they want, like, the TikTok generation,
2: they have no idea what is in them. <laughs> yeah. They're so confused, which is how... All that is going on elsewhere in the world, like, you might think, Acha okay, oh, this might be, you know, like, one group of, like, school kids, you know, you got dressed up for whatever, maybe school, and then came here after to watch the movie. And then they must have gone on the internet and seen that it's
0: happening everywhere. And the thing is, it's not even like small groups of 10. There's like 20, 30 kids in suits just marching to theatres. It is a sight to behold. Yeah, it
2: really is. I love it. I wonder why why someone doesn't think that there's Pakistan behind this. (laughs) It's such an orchestrated thing, you know. On that wonderful conspiracy theory we come to the end
1: of this episode catch us every week on Thursday on the IVM Podcast Network and guys please remember don't let the news give you the boost